When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. President of the U.S., desirous of having done what shall be strictly conformable to the treaties of the U.S. and the laws respecting the several representations received from yourself and the Minister Plenipotentiary of Great Britain on the subject of vessels arming or arriving within our ports and of prizes, has determined to refer the questions arising thereon to persons learned in the laws. As this reference will occasion some delay, he will expect from both parties that in the meantime, the little Sarah, or little Democrat, the ships Jane and William in the Delaware, the Citoyen Genet, and her two prizes, the lovely Lass and Prince William Henry, and the brig Fanny in the Chesapeake, do not depart until his ultimate determination shall be made known. You may be assured, sir, that the delay will be as short as possible, and the object of it being to obtain the best advice possible on the sense of the laws and treaties respecting the several cases. I am persuaded you will thank the delay well compensated. With this letter, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson directed French Minister to the U.S. Edmund Charles Genet and British Minister to the U.S. George Hammond that neither British nor French ships currently in and around Philadelphia should set sail until Washington and his cabinet should reach a decision on the obligations of the United States to either nation, or, more accurately, what latitude they had to enforce neutrality. Though there have been plenty of waiting and seeing in the past couple of months, decisions would start coming soon all around, and by the end of this episode, Washington would make a crucial choice in declaring that the scheming Edmund Charles Genet must go. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. When last we left off, everyone was waiting for President Washington to return to Philadelphia, and Jefferson met with Genet on July 7, 1793, in an attempt to convince him to prevent the sailing of La Petite Democrat, the prized ship that French privateers had captured from the British, and refit it to take on their enemies. Genet had offered little reassurance, so the next day, the cabinet members present in Philadelphia, Jefferson, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, and Secretary of War Henry Knox, met with Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin to discuss the situation. Washington had instructed governors to work to prevent foreign vessels from arming in American ports, but Mifflin questioned the highest-ranking officials of the federal government present as to what that meant. Was he to simply stick with verbal and written warnings? Should a legal challenge be filed? Or was military action called for? Hamilton and Knox advocated for setting up a battery at Mud Island in the Delaware River south of Philadelphia as a bulwark against foreign ships setting out for sea. But Jefferson thought this a step too far. Jefferson felt that legal action should be taken against U.S. citizens who had signed up on the crews of foreign vessels intended to fight nations that the U.S. itself was not at war with. But he did not feel that a martial response was justified and might instead cause conflict rather than prevent it. As they could not agree on a course of action, nothing was done until Washington's return. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. 
Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, Jefferson began to suffer from fever and removed himself from the city for his place near Gray's Ferry. When Washington arrived back in town on the 11th, find his Secretary of State absent in the midst of a diplomatic crisis, but unaware of the reason why. He sent a message to Jefferson asking for his thoughts on the situation to be sent, quote, before tomorrow. After learning of the reason for Jefferson's absence, Washington was a little more understanding, but still called for a cabinet meeting the next day. Part of his irritation came from the reports that Jefferson had left him with the note that they needed his, quote, instant attention, outlining all that had transpired over the last few days, including Genet's threat conveyed to Alexander J. Dallas to appeal over Washington's head to the people if Washington didn't relent on the issue of neutrality. One can only imagine Washington's initial reaction, but an indication of it comes in his letter to Jefferson, in which he asked, quote, is the minister of the French Republic to set the acts of this government at defiance with impunity and then threaten the executive with an appeal to the people? What must the world think of such conduct and of the government of the United States for submitting to it? Washington was not one to take disrespect lightly. Thus, Jefferson quickly saw in the meeting the next day that, despite his appeals on behalf of the French cause, the president was leaning more towards the use of force to stop La Petite Democrat from setting sail. Within a few days, the request came from Mifflin and seems to have been fulfilled for cannons to be erected on Mud Island. But this came all too late, for, as Washington was consulting with his cabinet, La Petite Democrat sailed on past the island and within a few days, at Genet's order, set out to sea. Though the ship had slipped through the fingers of the government, it did not mean that the problems were over. First off, there was the troublesome French minister with whom they had to deal. Hamilton urged Washington on the 12th to request that the French government recall Genet. Knox was in agreement and went a bit further in suggesting that he be suspended from his official functions until a reply could be received from France. Jefferson naturally urged moderation and instead argued that Genet's correspondence with American officials should be sent to the French government, quote, with friendly observations. However, the decision was deferred for another day, as other, more important questions remained. Washington asked his cabinet about whether foreign powers had the right to increase their armament on their ships in U.S. ports and to recruit U.S. citizens to serve on their vessels. As usual, the cabinet divided, with Jefferson affirming those rights, while Hamilton and Knox took the reverse position. With question after question falling out in the same way, Washington felt that he needed further guidance. Thus, he directed Jefferson to send a message to Chief Justice John Jay and the other members of the Supreme Court asking their opinions on 29 questions related to U.S.-French relations, including, quote, Do the treaties between the U.S. and France give to France or her citizens a right, when at war with the power with whom the U.S. are at peace, to fit out originally in and from the ports of the U.S. vessels armed for war, with or without commission? 
do those treaties, particularly the Consular Convention, authorize France, as of right, to erect courts within the jurisdiction of the U.S. for the trial and condemnation of prizes made by armed vessels in her service? And may we, within our own ports, sell ships to both parties, prepared merely for merchandise. May they be pierced for guns. Washington and his cabinet wanted to be thorough and know exactly which legal boundaries they were working within and what latitude they may have. The court, due to the absences of Justices John Blair and William Cushing, initially demurred from making the decision. But finally, after being pressed by Washington, came to a conclusion on August 8th that, while proving unhelpful to the administration in the short term, in the long run established an important precedent for the division between the branches of government. The Supreme Court wrote to Washington that, quote, the lines of separation drawn by the Constitution between the three departments of government, their being in certain respects checks on each other, and our being judges of a court in the last resort are considerations which afford strong arguments against the propriety of our extrajudicially deciding the questions alluded to. We exceedingly regret every event that may cause embarrassment to your administration, but we derive consolation from the reflection that your judgment will discern what is right, and that your usual prudence, decision, and firmness will surmount every obstacle to the preservation of the rights peace, and dignity of the United States. One does have to wonder if the thought went into Washington's mind to tell the Supreme Court what they could do with their consolation, but the path forward was clear. He had to return to the cabinet for their thoughts, and Washington would have to make up his own mind as to how to proceed. While waiting for this decision from the Supreme Court, though, Washington would be on hand to greet the returning Randolph and to hear firsthand what he found in his trip south. After leaving Philadelphia, Randolph had first traveled to Baltimore, where he met with Colonel Samuel Smith, described as, quote, an ardent supporter of Hamilton, along with other officials from Delaware and Maryland, and discovered, quote, that the state of Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland have but one sentiment, that of approving the neutrality proclamation. The news from the rest of his trip, though, would not be as good. First, Randolph learned of discontent in the newest state of the Union, Kentucky. Kentucky had joined the Union the previous year as the 15th state, but since then, it seems that, quote, bitterness against the government had developed due to, quote, the inattention of the Washington administration to the defense of that state. However, the real problems were to be found in Virginia. Already finding some rumblings in Georgetown and Alexandria, they grew louder the further south he went and the closer he got to the capital of Richmond. Part of this agitation he attributed to Senator John Taylor of Caroline, who was mentioned back in episode 1.9. Randolph wrote to Washington that, quote, It would astonish you, sir, to learn the success which has attended his, Taylor's, efforts to rouse the cool and substantial planners. The promise of Republican France beat strong in Taylor's heart, and, as Randolph was soon to discover, in the hearts of many Virginians. He reported to Washington that, in Richmond, quote, Parties are strong and the friends to the government are far inferior in number to its enemies. Many prominent Virginians, including several judges of the state's general court, were open in their opposition to neutrality and were yet again rallying around the old firebrand Patrick Henry. Randolph felt that the anti-administration faction would, quote, be fortified in their opposition when they perceived so many advocates of character in their midst. But in a bright spot, noted that his talks with Federalists in Virginia found that, quote, they think themselves armed in the federal government's defense. After a brief foray to Williamsburg, Randolph returned to Philadelphia on July 19th 
and thus was on hand to join in the administration's deliberations about what should be done about Genet. By the time he met with his cabinet on the 23rd, it seems that Washington had come to the decision that the U.S. had to request Genet's recall. However, the president understood that this was a delicate matter. It had to be conducted in such a way as to not offend the French government. As the administration deliberated how to deal with the troublesome minister, the effects of his actions kept playing out. On July 27th, a grand jury handed down an indictment against the U.S. citizen for violating the Neutrality Proclamation by his service on the French privateer, the Citizen Genet, that was one of the four commissioned down in Charleston back in April. July 31st found a Jefferson who was discovering himself, thanks to Genet's intransigence, increasingly unable to influence the government towards a pro-French policy, writing to Washington of his desire to leave the administration, as discussed last episode. Meanwhile, party agitations continued to ramp up as a result of the tensions with the French. Washington had dinner with Senator Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, who pledged to, quote, engage for all his connections to carry out a public relations campaign against Genet and his defenders, as Philip Freneau's rhetoric in the National Gazette grew ever more inflammatory. The ultimate insult would come with a broadside entitled The Funeral Dirge of George Washington and James Wilson, King and Judges which came out sometime in late July or early August. I've yet to find a copy of this satirical attack, nor have I yet seen an explanation for why Supreme Court Justice James Wilson was included in the attack. But as it was described in secondary sources, it seems that, quote, it described Washington being executed on the guillotine for his aristocratic ways. This broadside so infuriated Washington that when, on August 2nd, during a cabinet meeting to discuss the request for Genet's recall, when Knox brought it up, Washington, as described by Jefferson, quote, was much inflamed, got into one of those passions when he cannot command himself, ran on much on the personal abuse which had been bestowed on him, defied any man on earth to produce one single act of his since he had been in the government, which was not done on the purest motives, that he had never repented but once, the having slipped the moment of resigning his office. And that was every moment since, that by God he had rather be in his grave than in his present situation, that he had rather be on his farm than to be made emperor of the world, and yet that they were charging him with wanting to be a king that that rascal Furneaux sent him three of his papers every day as if he thought he would become the distributor of his papers, that he could see in this nothing but an impudent design to insult him. He ended in this high tone. There was a pause. Some difficulty in resuming discussion of our previous question. Washington would not have been able to withstand the scrutiny of politics in the late 20th and early 21st century, given his reaction to the criticism he was receiving in his second term. But one also has to remember that this was a new experience for Washington. Even when he had made missteps previously in his career, he had still been lauded and treated with respect. Now, in doing what he felt was right for the nation, he had materials being printed about the possibility of his being guillotined. These veiled threats, however, would not stop him from proceeding on what he felt to be the right path. The cabinet on August 3rd drew up a list of rules for belligerents, declaring that, quote, the arming and equipping of vessels in the ports of the United States by any of the belligerent parties for military service offensive or defensive, and that, quote, are of a nature solely adapted to war, are deemed unlawful. 
Meanwhile, Washington asked his cabinet members for their opinions on whether Congress should be called back into session early. Ultimately, Washington would decide, after reviewing his cabinet members' written positions, that such a course was not necessary. But Henry Knox, in his response dated August 5th, would feel the need to give Washington something akin to a pep talk. He reminded the president that, quote, In the present state of things in this country, as well as in Europe, an expectation of uncommon events has been generally excited. The prudent and sober part of the community regard, as in the case of Storm, the mind and countenance of the chief pilot. While he remained confident and composed, happiness is diffused around. But when he doubts, then anxiety and fear has its full effect. With regards to foreign affairs, Knox felt that, quote, it is probably the powers of the president may be adequate to deal with the situation, but that there were other items on the government's agenda, notably that of the Native Americans in what was then the southwestern U.S., something that we will discuss in upcoming episodes, that were more in line with needing Congress's more immediate attention. Overall, however, he felt that calling Congress back early would make it seem that there was a crisis and, quote, would produce greater evil than good. Knox knew that Washington could handle the situation before him, so long as he didn't let Furneaux, Genet, or anyone else get under his skin. If Washington believed in Washington, then he could see this through. On August 15th, a draft of a letter requesting Genet's recall was read at a cabinet meeting, and after a few days of consideration, the final draft was finally agreed upon on August 20th. All that remained now was for Secretary of State Jefferson to send the request to U.S. Minister to France, Governor Morris, who would then take it to the French government for their consideration. For the sake of wrapping up the story of Genet, let's fast forward a little bit. On October 5th, Morris received a letter from Jefferson asking him to request Genet's recall and wrote back on the 19th that the French government had agreed to recall him and were going to send orders to that effect. In the meantime, Chief Justice John Jay and Senator Rufus King of New York had a piece published in the Diary, a New York City newspaper, informing the public that, quote, Genet had said he would appeal to the people from certain decisions of the president. This gave people pause about the French minister. Like Alexander Dallas, though there were some who may have had their problems with neutrality and may be inclined to support the French in their revolutionary development, they were at heart Americans first. And who, in their eyes, was more American than George Washington? Though Genet would attempt to defend himself in the press, with ultimately Jefferson being drawn into the mix, then would ask Randolph to prosecute Jay and King for libel, Genet would not enjoy the same popularity in the U.S. as he had previously. Meanwhile, France had undergone a political shift. The Girondins had been displaced by the Jacobins, who we'll discuss in more detail at a later point. But suffice it to say, the reign of terror had begun, and Genet's successor, Jean-Antoine Fauché, would carry with him orders for Genet to return to France, quote, to stand trial for crimes against the revolution. Genet, not wishing to be a victim of the terror, appealed to the United States for asylum, and Washington, despite his previous issues with Genet, granted it in November 1794. Thus, the French aristocrat turned fervent revolutionary would find himself an American who would ultimately marry Cordelia Clinton, the daughter of New York governor and eventual vice president George Clinton. Cornelia, as the daughter of a prominent Democratic Republican, had followed news of Genet prior to their meeting and was described as having felt him to be, quote, the great defender of the rights of mankind, patriotically fighting America's old enemy. Genet, as a sign of affection, would have La Petite Democrat rechristened Cornelia in her honor. 
After their marriage, Edmund Charles Genet would live the remainder of his days in New York. Genet would ultimately prove to be the next in a long line of ambitious people who, in a projected path to greatness, felt it necessary to cross swords with George Washington, but would find himself on the losing end. However, his quixotic quest to turn the people of the United States against their president would ultimately prove to be pivotal for establishing some key concepts of U.S. foreign relations and how America would seek to maintain a neutral stance in European conflicts in the coming decades. The level of interference in domestic affairs that Genet attempted would afterwards be considered untoward by representatives of foreign nations based in the U.S. moving forward. However, it did not mean that it would be smooth sailing on the diplomatic front here on out, very much to the contrary. The Washington administration may finally have decided on a course of action that would ultimately bring a resolution to the problems of the moment. But across the nation and the world, folks would continue to work to deny Washington and his cabinet the lasting peace that they had sought in their work during the summer of 1793. Beginning with Europe, on May 9th, the French National Convention issued a decree authorizing the seizure of neutral vessels loaded with provisions and bound to enemy ports. On June 8th, the British government would issue a similar order in council to naval commanders with a specific focus on cargoes of corn, flour, or meal in neutral vessels bound for France. The British government would purchase these cargoes in an attempt to starve out the French people and foment an uprising among a people who had already overthrown one government quite recently. Though both orders would, by the letter of the law, exempt American ships from seizure, it was anyone's guess as to whether this exemption would play out on the high seas. Meanwhile, the nascent political parties continued their back and forth. As prompted by Hamilton, a public meeting was held in Richmond, Virginia to express support for Washington, his administration, and for neutrality. This meeting was organized by a young Federalist who we will be talking a great deal about in the future. This young man, an up-and-coming politician who had early on started a study of law before serving in the Revolutionary War, then reading with the renowned Virginia legal scholar George Wythe, was a cousin of Jefferson's who would prove to be a thorn in his side. This young man was none other than John Marshall. Since it's going to be some time before we go in-depth into Marshall, if you'd like to learn more about the man who had become the great Chief Justice, I highly recommend Thomas Daly's American Biography podcast, which is currently in the midst of an insightful examination of Marshall's life. Leading Democratic Republicans in Virginia were in the interim in a planning period. In late August, Senator James Monroe and Representative James Madison would meet at Monroe's home near Charlottesville to draft resolutions asserting, quote, that the United States ought to remember gratefully French aid during the American Revolution, that the cause of liberty in America was tied to the same cause in France, and that the Tories and monocrats in America, who showed an active zeal to assimilate our government to the form and spirit of the British monarchy, ought to be reprobated. Both men would also prove active in the newspapers. The first of Madison's essays, under the pseudonym Helvidius, would be published in the Gazette of the United States on August 24th to counter Hamilton's Pacificus essays. Monroe and Marshall, meanwhile, would engage throughout the fall in a back-and-forth imprint in the Virginia Gazette and General Advertiser beginning in September. Washington may have been re-elected unanimously less than a year prior, but the further into 1793 the nation got the more divided it became about the policies and stances taken by his administration. Little could they have imagined, though, that an even greater threat than the British, the French, or factionalism was festering in the bodies coming ashore in Philadelphia from abroad. 
whether by humans known to be aboard or mosquitoes that had stowed away, someone, somewhere, brought a virus to the city nestled between the Delaware and the Schuylkill that would make the late summer and fall of 1793 infamous in the history of infectious diseases. I hope you'll join me next time for an episode that I'd like to call Pestilence, the Yellow Fever Epidemic of 1793. Special thanks, as always, to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. His coming on board to the podcast proved to be a revolution in its quality, so I cannot recommend him enough should you need his assistance on your podcast or audio project. Feel free to touch base with him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Source information for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you'd like to follow up with me with any questions, comments, or just to say hi, there are numerous ways to reach me. I can be reached by email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Just a note on when we'll be wrapping up the Washington series. In order to do proper justice to this pivotal and action-packed second term, I've added in a couple of extra episodes. Right now, I'm anticipating finishing up this series in January. For my last episode in the series, I'm planning to take your questions on Washington, his presidency, his life, or anything related to any of those. I know January seems a long ways off now, but it'll be here before we know it. So be thinking and feel free to send your questions in as soon as you'd like. As always, thank you so much for listening. And take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.